evolution selects based on what enables you to live longer and reproduce more. And uh, uh, avoiding bad things is more important uh, uh, than finding the good things. I mean, let's consider some some food that might be good or might poison you. Uh, well, it's more important to avoid being poisoned if you happen to miss out on uh, a good meal. Well, that has some cost, uh, but but one meal missed won't kill you, whereas one poison dose uh, can kill you. In a sense, life has to win every day. Death only has to win once. <laughs> we learn a lot more from bad events than from good ones, which is why this idea we should shield children from failure and bad experiences. I don't think this is a, a healthy development. Uh, it's it's well known. You 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 think harder about what went wrong. What could I fix? What could I do differently after something bad? everybody and welcome back to Chasing Consciousness. So today we've got the important topic of the inherent negativity bias in human psychology to look at. Now this is the tendency for bad events, experiences and emotions to have more impact on us than good ones. Now we see this in all kinds of places, in relationships, social patterns, traumatic events, the media, even in our learning processes. Now, the psychology research shows that bad impressions and stereotypes form quicker than good ones, that the self is more motivated to avoid bad self-definitions than to pursue good ones, and even that the bad impressions are more thoroughly processed than the good ones. Now, this all plays out in the media, in the consumer markets, and in politics, and thus defines our culture going forward. So my big question here is, is this natural? Is there anything we can do to mitigate it? And do we even want to? Fortunately, our guest today is a specialist in these matters, one of the most prolific and cited psychologists in the world with over 650 publications. He is Professor Roy Baumeister. His 40 books include the New York Times bestseller, Willpower. His research covers so many things, but I must list them because they're important. Self and identity, self-regulation, interpersonal rejection, the need to belong, sexuality and gender, aggression, self-esteem, meaning, consciousness and free will, some of which we're going to be talking about in connection with negativity bias today. In 2013, he received the William James Award for Lifetime Achievement in Psychological Science, extremely well-deserved. Now, importantly, he co-wrote a seminal paper on the very topic of today's episode in 2001 called Bad is Stronger Than Good. And one of his latest books, co-authored with John Tierney, is called The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. Now, quick note, listeners, all of the books, the quotes, the papers, the concepts and the conversation points are exhaustively listed in the show notes. Should anyone want to go back? and check the authority of the things that we're citing here on the show. Uh, they're all on the website. If I can't fit them in on some of the platforms, please, please use them. I think it's so important to have really, really uh, precise references on a science show. I, I really do my best with that. 
a massive thank you to all of you for your support on this third series so far. It's great to see it growing so fast. Keep spreading the word with your friends um, by sharing. If you can give us a five-star rating on iTunes or subscribe to the bell if you're listening on YouTube, it really helps the algorithms get it in front of like-minded people like yourselves. Also, please hit me up on Instagram and Facebook so I can keep you informed when the new shows come out. And so you can join in the fascinating conversation we've got going around the, the topics that we're discussing here on the show. And keep sending me your guest suggestions. You've been doing a great job on that so far. Several people I hadn't heard of who I've managed to get on the show. Thanks to your suggestions. Please keep doing that. Thank you so much. Now, I have been fascinated by this standout feature of negativity bias in human nature. Well, actually, ever since I noticed it as a kid. And then I went on to see it uh, very, very clearly in the media when I became an adult. So it's something I've wanted to cover on the show ever since we uh, we started the podcast. So I really can't wait to get the opinion of someone who studied it in so much depth like Roy. So without further ado, let's go. Professor Roy Baumeister, welcome to Chasing Consciousness. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you today? Okay, Freddie. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm fine today. Great. Now, before we get into the data and the research, I always love to remind my listeners that my guests were young and innocent once too, like them, by asking about those first deep, deep questions and reflections about the world, about the life, and about the universe usually sometime sort of between 6, 8, 10, 12 years old. What deep thoughts can you remember from that time that might have influenced your your later choice of career or thinking? I guess the first deep issue uh, I confronted was religion. I was uh, raised as a Presbyterian and sent to Sunday school, and I found the the teacher's not particularly inspiring, and uh, began to ask questions about it. And um, so, I always seem to be rebelling against whatever the the dominant view is, uh, um, looking for alternative ways of thinking about things. Uh, so, I remember wondering at one point, uh, maybe I could study uh, some kind of research study on religion and and psychology, and and see if uh, there's enough reason to think that the human mind could have invented the whole God business. Uh, this was just a product of the mind. Um, so I wondered about that, and uh, um, my career plans were different, though. I was uh, kind of a math whiz in high school, uh, so I was going to go uh, major in math, and I, I chose Princeton for my undergraduate because they were currently rated as the best math department in the country. Obviously, I pretty soon decided I wasn't really cut out for a career in higher math. Uh, and so then I was doing philosophy and religion for a while and wanted to address the big questions. And those were back in the hippie days, the early 1970s. And, uh, you know, the hippies had a political phase, which I missed. I've never been very political. Uh, but then they had that spiritual phase, uh, uh, you know, meditating and taking LSD and trying to understand the inner workings of the mind. Um, so that all appealed to me uh, quite a bit. Um, and I would have stayed with that, except uh, philosophy was the, the the apparent major. And my parents said, uh, 
but there's no money in that. You can't make a living in philosophy. Uh, so they uh, they said I they'd pay for it. You know, Princeton was expensive. Uh, if I were had a better career plan, like I could major in philosophy and go to law school. And I remember talking to some lawyers to try to find out what it's like. And they they liked their jobs, but I thought, no, that was, I remember thinking that was bad karma uh, <laughs> to be a lawyer. Uh, and so I declined that. And uh, I kind of stumbled on psychology as a, as a compromise it's when I was reading about philosophy. Um, I happened to read one of Freud's books. Uh, who addressed the question of where do morals come from, but not as a philosopher would by thinking really carefully and rigorously about the concepts. Uh, instead, he looked for evidence. He said, well, how do children actually learn what's right and wrong and what are the first steps? And he uh, looked at anthropology. I mean, this was back in 1912 or whatever. Anthropology's come a long way since then. But based on the evidence they had then, what were the earliest uh, uh, moral values in societies? And I thought, wow, that could work. Uh, you could take the sort of scientific method and uh, address these big philosophical questions. Uh, my parents weren't too happy about psychology either. Uh, but uh, but my father did some research, and it turned out the company he worked for had some industrial psychologists who had a higher salary than he did. So he said, well, I guess you can make money at it. So, okay. Uh, and that was it. Uh, obviously, it's a total coincidence. I mean, the salaries of industrial psychologists in Cleveland in the 1970s had no relation to my career at all. Uh, but that was a deciding factor in uh, getting my father to say, all right, I'll write the checks for your for your college. Absolutely. And it's it's certainly this the science, the psychology of belief and the psychology of um, uh, belonging, which we're going to get into today, is definitely related to these religious questions, these deeper questions, isn't it? Now, yes, right. yes. I, I live surrounded by religious people here. I, I'm I'm not religious at all, uh, but I respect what religion has done, and the the people are 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 very nice and so on. And so, you know, my take is, even if there is a God and it's true, religion as it is practiced is a product of the human mind and human culture, uh, and so you know it clearly changes and evolves over time and adapts to circumstances and. Uh, it's something that, that people came up with uh, in the first place. Uh, so um, you can believe it or not, uh, but still respect the, uh, the psychological work that went into, that went into uh, uh, shaping it the way it is. And of course, there a lot of even deeply religious people are very skeptical of particular religious institutions, whether it's uh, the popes and the Catholic machinery or the uh, or any of the others. Mm. Now, right. Let's get straight into the main topic of today's show: uh, humanity's human nature's innate negativity bias. Now, more than twenty years ago, you and a whole bunch of colleagues wrote an important paper called "Bad is Stronger Than Good," where you tried to find exceptions to this clear tendency to focus on the bad over the good, and more or less, you couldn't find any exceptions. And then more recently in 2021, you wrote a book about this phenomenon with John Tierney, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. So let's start to describe this important feature for us all to bear in mind, to understand this important part of, of human nature. Let's start with evolution. Now, in our primordial past, there was a really pretty good reason why our ancestors were wired to focus on the bad, right? 
Uh, yes, uh, to uh, evolution selects based on what enables you to live longer and reproduce more, and uh, uh, avoiding bad things is more important uh, uh, than finding the good things. I mean, let's consider some some food that might be good or might poison you. <laughs> uh, well, it's more important to avoid being poisoned. If you happen to miss out on uh, a good meal, well, that has some cost. Uh, but but one meal missed won't kill you, whereas one poison dose uh, can kill you. Um, yeah, we didn't start with evolution. I mean, it started just noticing patterns here and there that uh, bad things seem to have strong effects. And so I rounded up a couple of my uh, colleagues and, and students and said, well, let's let's look for this in the literature and let's find uh, uh, the exceptions because that'll make it a more interesting theory. We'll see where bad is stronger than good and where it is not. Uh, and and so we had a whole bunch of pet theories, like maybe the past would emphasize bad, but the future would emphasize good. But none of them panned out. It just seemed to be true everywhere. Uh, and so the, the paper got longer and longer. We looked into different areas of research and uh, and they find it. <laughs> it was funny when I was getting ready to write the book with uh, Tierney. Uh, I said, well, let me read through. And by then the paper had been cited hundreds, if not thousands of times. So we got a research assistant to go through, round up uh, all the citations uh, for us. And I read a lot of the abstracts and a fair number of the articles looking, did they have anything new? Had they found exceptions? But no, they mostly all said, oh, here it is again. Um, it's often you design a study where you've got a good and a bad and a, and a neutral control. And well, the, the bad is farther from the neutral control than the good. And so the reviewers at the journal, like any scientist, would say, well, how come they're not the same? You did, you know, you gain $50, you lose $50. Shouldn't that produce equal departures from neutral happiness? But no, you're more upset about losing $50 than you're happy about gaining $50. Uh, so our, our paper, I think, uh, gave them a reason to uh, say, oh, no, this is a standard pattern. Is it? We don't need any special... Uh, uh, analysis or uh, anything like that. So anyway, there there wasn't a lot of new. There were a couple uh, new ideas. Um, a couple of people showed that uh, sometimes hitting the middle is what you have to do to be good. And so either too much or too little would be bad. So in a sense, there are two ways to, to be bad and one way to be good. Mm. Two ways to be wrong and one way to be right. So that I thought that was a nice, interesting, creative... Uh, but, but um, what's your pet theory? Uh, do you think it's evolutionary? This kind well, yes, of we were, yeah, clear was, tendency. Was, sorry about that. Uh, we were no, no, no. Around. I was. It's just we, obviously, we, I'm. I, I immediately want to know why. You know, it's it's that yes. question. If it's so clearly yeah. present yeah. in the data, there must be a yeah. very very clear reason why we've evolved that way. Uh, yeah, well, we again, we didn't start out thinking in evolutionary terms, but given how uh, ubiquitous it was everywhere uh bad was stronger than good with well this is pretty deeply rooted in the mind and a couple of colleagues even pointed us to some uh studies with rats uh that uh, they show bad is stronger than good they'll they'll pull harder to get away from something bad than they'll pull to move toward something good uh a couple other things like that so all right if it's that universal and found in other animals and so on, then we're starting to think uh, it's probably an evolution. And I think it's summarized it, uh, I don't know if it was in the book or the paper or whatever, but in a sense, 
life has to win every day. Death only has to win once. Right. <laughs> so watch out for things that can kill you. Mm. Um, and actually, we see this in the neurological basis, too. I mean, like, for example, the amygdala, which is uh, extraordinarily fast to respond. We've got some interesting shows on this, uh, listeners. Episode 5 with Stephen Porges where he's talking about polyvagal theory and, and we go right into the psychology of threat. Um, it's much, much faster than the frontal cortex or any other self, self-control self or self-regulatory circuits can intervene. Um, Absolutely. And, yeah, it has to be very deeply rooted and, and there. I, I, I'm not a brain expert, but my simple-minded understanding of it is that the brain evolved from back to front. Uh, so the older parts are the ones we have similar to all the other animals, and the the front parts are the newer ones with the more specifically human traits. So when you look at something that's this deeply rooted, you have to assume it's in the old part in the the rear of the brain. Evolution didn't get rid of obsolete parts of the brain. <laughs> I might have retooled a few of them, but mostly it added on new ones that can override them and integrate them and uh, do more complex things. So the the front and the I remember being intimidated by the term prefrontal, but all it means is in front of the front. It's like the super front. Uh, and so that's where self-control and a lot of my research uh, uh, is focused on. Again, we don't. my work doesn't really aim at the, the brain processes so much as uh, social behaviors and interpersonal reactions. Um, but self-control is, is something I've studied a great deal. It strikes me as significant, this idea that if something that is uh, much, much faster to react in uh, in the brain or in, in human nature, in the in the psychology, sort of, shall we say, trumps any self-control, it would make sense that it's much, much stronger and it, and it acts much, much faster. For example, there's something, an interesting finding from your paper that jumped out at me, that we process the negative more thoroughly than the positive. What did you mean yes. by process thoroughly? And, and what's uh, pay more attention to, to it, think about it more, um, makes a stronger memory trace. Although the memory thing is, is complicated because there are other later processes that try to damp down bad memories so you don't go on feeling bad. Um, but uh, in terms of people measure the amount of time you look at a, a stimulus, even on a computer screen, they have you know, cameras you can put in the screen and see where people are looking and you give them a bunch of faces. Well, if one of them has an angry scowl, the gaze kind of goes to that one over the others and looks uh, and spends more time looking at that than, uh, say, a smiling or happy face. Um when something we learn a lot more from bad events than from good ones, which is why this idea we should shield children from failure and bad experiences. I don't think this is a, a healthy development. Uh, it's it's well known. You 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 think harder about what went wrong, what could I fix, what could I do differently after something bad. A success kind of tells you, well, you did everything fine. No need to think any more about it. No need to analyze or pick things apart. Um, so uh, that's the sense in which we, we, we process information, uh, more thoroughly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to say too, with the brain stuff, I think some of it we covered in the original article, uh, uh the late great John Cacioppo was studying this and he had several papers showing that almost as soon as, uh, <laughs> as you see something, you know, whether it's so as soon as the brain knows what something is very soon after it sees it, hundredths of a second, um, 
it knows also then whether it's good or bad. And if it's bad, it, uh, it there's more activation, there's more processing. Uh, you know, pay attention to that, figure that out. If things are good, it's kind of a message of all's well, go back to sleep, mm. uh, take it easy, uh, at ease. Um, but, you mentioned the you mentioned the negative memories there, which is an interesting one because it's really in stark contrast your uh, the, your findings to the Pollyanna principle that states that we seem to remember far more vividly the good things over the bad, which we tend to sort of blank out and slowly forget, and that that seems really contradictory to this bias towards being much more prone and much more educated by our negative experiences. What, what's going on there? It seems like a contradiction. Yeah, well, the initial reaction to bad things is to pay more attention to them. And uh, uh, we have a, a number of laboratory studies showing that we have people take a personality test and you give them feedback, maybe accurate or maybe just random, sort of a mixture of good and bad things. Um, and the the bad things capture the attention more and are remembered more in the immediate uh, aftermath. And this is true even for people who are repressors, who are known for shutting out the bad things and saying, oh, everything in my life is great, uh, denying any unpleasantness or anxiety. Uh, but over time, there are these processes to... Uh, uh, to damp down or erase or conceal the bad memories. There are a number of defensive processes. Um, my uh, uh, One of the people I admired, Shelley Taylor, a great researcher, uh, she said this, mobilization and minimization, that's how the brain responds to threat. You mobilize resources to deal with it, and then you try to minimize uh, the long-term memory and impact from it. But you do learn. And so if you're back in that situation, uh, you'll remember not to repeat your mistakes. Uh, that, in was, many that was what I was going to say. It seems like uh, maybe the conscious memory uh, isn't there and isn't present, but I'm sure that the threat system uh, has learned its lesson very, very well and would activate yes. far, far faster. Yeah, with, it uh, will remind you right away. Someone was telling me they were looking at uh, interviews with survivors of the Holocaust uh, after World War II, uh, and they interviewed them years later uh, about it. And, and there were a number of sort of horrible things they remembered that they recounted the first time that uh, were absent from their later accounts. Uh, but then the researchers said, well, is it really gone? So they would sort of bring this up and say, well, right after the war, right after liberation, you said this. And then they said, oh, yeah. <laughs> so it was there in memory, but it was something that had sort of gotten buried. Well, that's um, dissociation as well, isn't it? Dissociation, it's exactly. This goes back to one of Freud's ideas about isolation. You know, the thought is in your mind, but you don't allow it to come into contact with any other thoughts. You never visit it. Studies of repressors get the same uh, the same result. You'd think they wouldn't have bad memories because they repress everything. They have just as many if you push them. Yeah, bad experiences happen to everybody, and, and they have them. Uh, they're just isolated. They aren't connected with uh, in in your mind with, with other things. It's sort of the opposite of like people who are depressed. Uh, for them, one bad thing is connected to another bad thing. So all you have to do is get them started on any bad thing, and there's this long chain of doom associations, and they can go on. 
all day and uh, you know, elaborate even how what we're doing now is going to be the end of civilization and uh, <laughs> life as we know it. Listeners, this comes up in our episode in this series three with um, uh, Fernandez uh, on EMDR therapy, this very, very interesting therapy, which basically is taking those memories out of their isolation, where in a sense they are disactivated, but they are also still very much embedded and reassesses our perspective on them, de, shall we say, bringing down the negative attachment that we have to them. So it's interesting that they might be contained and isolated, but that doesn't mean that they're not actually causing disturbance from, from within that lack of memory. What do you think about that, Roy? Well, I'm no expert on mental illness either. Uh, so, uh, again, the memory... Uh, can have a, a rich link of associations to lots of other things, in which case lots of things will remind you of it. Or you can bury it aside and uh, just never think about it. We know, too, that every time you remember something, it kind of creates a new memory, slightly alters the memory. So if you think about something frequently, you'll have lots of versions of it, uh, which, again, will make it easier to, uh, to, to come up and remind you. Now, whether... Something buried in your mind that you never think about can cause uh, distress and harm or psychological damage. Uh, I don't know the the research on that. It's it's certainly plausible, and uh, uh, for those people, um, maybe it is good to dig up the memory and confront it. And often things don't seem as bad when you when you face up to them. Uh, Before we move on to the media and the way that some features of our culture may be overstating the importance of this this negativity, maybe to the negative outcome of our society, I just wanted to give you the opportunity. Is there anything you think we need to understand about the the, the phenomena itself? Is there anything we need to add to, to get a clearer picture before we start talking about the cultural implications? Um, no, this seems to be a basic property of the mind to react to bad things more strongly than good things, uh, even when they are very carefully designed by the experimenter to be this, you know, exactly the same amount. Uh, you know, like those studies will, if you reach this criterion in your performance, you'll get a prize or we'll give you the prize, and if you fail to reach this criterion, we'll take it away. So it's the same contingency, prize or not, same level of performance. Uh, but the threat of losing something you have motivates people more than the threat of gaining something they don't have. Uh, it seems to work at every level of attention is the beginning, you know, the front door of the mind. It's what If you don't notice something, you can't really react to it. Um, but it's noticing, thinking about it, registering it, uh, directing resources to it, elaborating it. Uh, like I said, the only complication is with memory, even though it initially makes a stronger memory trace, uh, gradually there are forces to try to, uh, to tamp down so you don't feel unhappy about it all the time. So uh, I would just say it, it seems to be there. Uh, as far as we can tell, it's uh, found in other cultures as well. It's not some particular... Uh, uh, a feature of, of Western civilization. Uh, and there's some evidence for it in, in other animals as well. Now, moving on, something we're all profoundly acquainted with by now is the negativity bias in the media. 
Now, most new news organizations only focus on negative news. Uh, people tend to read stories about disaster and misfortune with an almost morbid curiosity, far, far more than stories with positive outcomes and success. I mean, even TV soap operas uh, and movies about day-to-day -day life need to be filled with dis disaster and downfall to get any ratings. Is this morbid curiosity natural, right? And And... Does it actually do us any good in our day-to-day -day lives to, to have this curiosity? I fear it is natural. Whether it does us good in our modern daily lives is harder to say. Uh, and, you know, people criticize the media for one-sided focus and so on, but uh, uh, I'm sympathetic to the media. They're in a business, and so to, they got to give the public what it wants. That's, uh, that's how you make a profit and... Uh, uh, and stay afloat. Uh, so, uh, if people didn't like reading bad stories, uh, I'm pretty sure the news media and the entertainment media would uh, would uh, would get rid of them. Um, it is more difficult. I remember a uh, history of the novel that I read uh, that uh, said, "Well, nobody's ever been able to make a good novel about a happy marriage," uh, <laughs> and a few have tried. And they quoted some passages about just everyone being happy and smiling. And that quickly just gets boring. Uh, people clearly like to read about bad marriages and falling apart marriages and other problem relationships. And uh, uh, so maybe it's connected as well to something we've covered here on the show in a, uh, the Joseph Campbell issue about the hero's journey that maybe, as you said, because we learn so much from those negative uh, experiences, those sort of dark nights of the soul, these trials uh, that Joseph Campbell noticed in all the, the myths of the world, you know, maybe that's why we're so interested in it, because it's almost as if there's, there's, a, there's a stagnation of a life that doesn't have that kind of sort of adventure and and um, and challenge to face. Uh, that, that could be. Um, uh, Campbell was in the tradition of uh, Carl Jung, the uh, sort of... Uh, uh, other He's psychoanalyst who uh, big hero. Uh, started out with Freud and then had a falling out, uh, but very much believed that a lot of stuff is innate in the mind and that uh, even thought some of these stories uh, were sort of born into you, the, the hero's journey, uh, which is why similar stories would be found in all different cultures. Uh, that kind of Jungian thought is not really doing so well these days. Um, it's certainly not that influential in the research community. So they'd look for other explanations like the commonality of human experience and more along the lines of what you just said, and that uh, a life without adventure is uh, rather dull and boring. And uh, if everything goes smoothly for you, um, well, then uh, you don't feel challenged. And so you get you get more interested in... Uh, um, it could be as well, just the sort of monotony of our working lives and, and you know, sort of capitalist reality of sort of going to the supermarket, coming back from work, you know, watching the TV and going back to work again. You know, we need something to sort of distract us a little bit from that, yes. that monotony. My parents, my parents' generation had been through World War II and you know, a lot of the guys had seen brutal combat and so on. And they didn't seem to be so eager to see destructive movies you know if you've lived it uh, in your own life it's it's not so entertaining um 
Another problem we're facing in the post-internet world, Roy, is that non-human algorithms uh, that have been designed to track exactly what we spend more time engaging with amplify this tendency to focus on negative stories by feeding us more of those negative stories, artificially encouraging us to believe that the world is actually worse than we think. Now, it's like Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism combined with a sort of supercharged algorithmic surveillance capitalism. So, right, apart from obvious questions of in increasing economic inequality of, of prosperity and privilege and, and, and you know, any one individual's placement on any number of bell curves regarding those things, it seems to me, and it sounds from your book as well, Roy, that on the whole, the world is getting better. Um, you know, access to clean, yes. access to yes. clean water, access to food, education, healthcare is on the whole rising across the world. As I said, not uniformly. Now, do you think, Roy, that these algorithmically led negativity echo chambers are giving us a skewed view of the world as it actually is? You know, so, sort of promoting political, sociological unrest, and 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 making this this negativity bias problem really problematic for our culture ongoing. Well, I don't know as much about the uh, algorithms and how widely they're being used right now, and so on. Uh, but the preference for bad news goes back farther than 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 those do. So they may cater to it, they may intensify it, uh, but they aren't the main thing responsible for it. Uh, you mentioned my co-author Tierney. I think it was one of his lines that uh, uh, the world is getting better, but on almost every index you can you can measure except hope. <laughs> <laughs> People think it's getting worse uh, when, in, in fact, uh, you know, and, and politically, they uh, people want to uh, make the case for change and. Uh, Probably, I mean, I don't like to take sides politically, but probably more on the left, since it's more oriented toward producing change, there has to be more of an uh, alarmist. Uh, there's something in the conservative about, well, things are pretty good, let's not mess it up. Um, so there's less of a need to uh, exaggerate it. What they want to exaggerate is the danger of change. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, both sides, uh, you know, one of my liberal friends was saying, oh, yeah, the whole uh, economic boom uh, of the late 20th century, it only benefited the rich and the average person was the same. Uh, and he had, we had just been corresponding about how child poverty in the United States had dropped by, by three quarters or something, far, far fewer. So I said, well, how can how can the, the child poverty thing be going down? Is it all the rich people are adopting all the poor children or something? And he said, oh, yeah, I, I didn't, that doesn't really add up. I haven't made sense of it. But uh um, I was staying with the, the standard line that uh, oh, these policies are only benefiting the rich, um, but the, the child poverty thing is going down. Uh, quality of life is improving in, in lots of ways. People are living longer, have more money. Um, so, uh, yes, overall, I mean, there are things that are getting worse, too. I remember I struggled for a long time as overall is the world getting better or worse, especially like. I was in high school in the late 60s, and you have that anxiety uh, things, and, and there was a lot of doom and gloom discussion then in the late 60s. Was a, you know, when they said, how are you? You didn't say, I'm fine, or I'm great, the way you say now. You say, well, I'm hanging in there, I'm surviving. That was the norm I noticed. Um, 
maybe that's a generational, generational thing as well. As we get older, we tend to, to to sort of be better off in that sense and be more satisfied. Yes, older people are happier than younger people. Um, there's some elaborate uh, theories about why that is, uh, Laura Karstensen, which goes back to one of the things we said earlier, is that bad stuff helps you learn. So when you're in your 20s, you got to learn. You got to figure out the world. You're embarking on your career. You're going to get a family together. You got to learn things. So you got to pay a lot of attention to, to, to bad things. And you get into your 50s or 60s, and all that's pretty much behind you. So learning is not so valuable, uh, and you want to enjoy life. And so old people just focus more on the positive things and pay less attention to the negative things. Uh, there's even brain research showing that this uh, overreaction of the brain to negative stimuli, that's much weaker in old folks uh, than in young folks. I remember hearing Karstensen talk about it, and she said... Uh, when she started getting these findings, she asked the old people, how come these bad things don't bother you? And they said, I just don't think about them. And she thought that was some kind of stupid, lame explanation. But finally, she saw the brain data and said, oh, yeah, <laughs> they don't think about it. You give them something bad, uh, they don't focus on it. But again, her, her view is uh, it's less part of your stage of life and your life challenge. When you're old, you want to... Uh, uh, enjoy the the time that's left and uh, be a good influence on your your, your children and grandchildren. Uh, you don't have to really uh, focus on misfortunes and disasters to try to learn to build forward a different future because your future is not going to be much different than what you have and, and there isn't that much of it. But Roy, just to come back for a moment to this idea of this sort of technological change in the way we deal with news and the way that the, that 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 clear tendency to go for negative stories over positive stories is being, shall we say, amplified by a sort of uh, exponential uh, amplification because it focuses on what we want and it gives us more of that. We we both agree that on the whole, life is getting better on the whole, and yet maybe this amplification of our negative view of the world is is really just... Do, do you, I mean, particularly as you've you've been around a bit longer than me, you, you might see a change with that post-internet world. Do you see any sort of change in the curve, as it were? Um, well, lately I've been trying to understand some of the political conflict and things that are going on. One of the big changes in the internet, which has largely replaced the local newspaper, uh, is that there are lots of sources competing for attention. And so they get more extreme. The local newspaper had to appeal to both sides because uh, so they had to have liberal and conservative uh, editorials and opinion columns and uh, and so on. And uh, when I back used to read newspaper, I would read them both and think about them. Uh, I used to read Newsweek. Uh, it was a, a fine magazine, and the last, the last page was a political editorial, and they alternated uh, weeks between a liberal and a conservative, and I would always read whichever one uh, because they have readers across the spectrum, and they're trying to sell to everybody, so they, they can't be one-sided. That is gone uh, with the uh, online news sources. Uh, even arguments that uh, some institutions uh, have just decided to trade in uh, on their reputation for being uh, being uh, objective and fair-minded, uh, just to appeal to one side of the political spectrum. 
Um, and so uh, they demonize the other side uh, without anybody saying, you know, calling calling that this is too extreme or you're going too hard or, or there's another way to look at it. Um, there's, so, a real, there's a real disconnect there between reality as it improves and this kind of sort of extreme uh, polarization, isn't there? Yes, and it's there. Uh, what a number of the, the political science papers I read say the public is mostly done in research in America, but I would imagine it's the same in Europe. The public is not really changing to be more extreme, but the politicians are. Uh, and so their attitudes are not more extreme, but they identify with their side and it's more of a tribal thing and, and demonize the other side. Um, was a, a survey by the Pew Foundation a, a couple of years ago. Um, they not only asked people across the political spectrum their views on attitudes, but they asked to predict what would the average conservative, the average liberal, here's Democrat and Republican, uh, think. And they way overestimated the extremity of the other side. Everybody did this. It was uh, both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, so uh, I tell my colleagues who study uh, prejudice and stereotyping, you know, they all want to in America, focus on white anti-black prejudice. And I said, well, that's a really unusual case. You're not going to get generalizable knowledge from that. Study political stereotypes because they are really distorting uh, the facts. And they would generalize pretty much every country has, uh, every democracy at least, has center-right and center-left parties uh, who are going to be have similar kinds of conflicts and similar sorts of, uh, of, of stereotyping. Um, so... As the media, and I think this is an unfortunate trend to to line up to advocate one side or another, uh, but that's how they keep their uh, their clientele, and that's that's their business model. Mm. And this brings us to a deeper question uh, about this connection between fear, obviously connecting here to to our negativity bias, and control. Uh, if we look back into history, we we've seen many political regimes and religions use this sort of negative propaganda, this fear of other, to keep mm -hmm. people on side, to keep them under control, to make them unite under a common identity and support their leaders in the pushback against sometimes illusory and, and exaggerated nemeses. Now, in your opinion, Roy, how much of the negativity bias we see in the media is just led by the market responding to our evolutionary psychology, and how much of it is actually planned, you think, to promote control and conformity with, with authority? Hmm. Uh, I don't know. There's certainly plenty of the former uh, that uh, our nature uh, goes along with it. Um, and I don't know that the media executives think that, uh, well, let's manipulate people to gain control over them. Uh, but they will see that, uh, oh, more of our readers like this story than that story. Let's do more of this kind of story. Mm. Uh, and so that can fuel it without a, you know, exploitative plan. And, and there is a tendency to see the outsiders, uh, as threats. Uh, I, uh, uh, or go back to, uh, say, state religions, where uh, if you deviated from it, in many cases, you could be tortured to death, burned at the stake, uh, certainly deprived of rights and liberties and and so on. 
but they did really see those people uh, as a danger to them. I mean, for me, being not religious, uh, that that some Christians would put other Christians to death because they gave the wrong answer about the virgin birth or the Trinity uh, <laughs> sounds peculiar to me. Uh, but the government often is associated with the, the, the religion. That's why it's a state religion, and uh, they support each other. The government wants the people to think, well, you should obey the government because God says so. Uh, and the religion does much better in terms of funding and nice life and so on if it uh, has government support. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's very rough to, uh, to deal with uh, opposing views. Europe went through centuries of wars between Protestants and Catholics uh, with uh, different uh, solutions of, of tolerance coming and going. I remember Germany for a while was seven different states and... Uh, and they just said, well, whatever the head of the state is, that's what everybody does. And so sometimes uh, the prince would change from Protestant to Catholic. And so suddenly all the people were expected to uh, to change their religion. Um, well, in UK, so, in UK, it went back and forth quite a, quite a lot. So you, you didn't. Yes. You had to change several times to stay alive. But yeah, right, I guess I mention it because... Um, the tribalization that we're seeing from that that polarity coming out of this algorithmic mm -hmm. uh, amplification, that polarization, the the tribalization that's happening, sort of is very very. It reminds me a lot of those old religious, um, you know, the the sort of you're with us or against us. It's us or them kind of mm -hmm. times, and I. Kind of and in hunter-gatherers, it really was. You had competing groups, you know, wanting the same land, the same territory, and it often came came to blows uh, or spears. Uh, so others really were a threat. Uh, the, the end of the Cold War sort of removed the external threat. Uh, I, I noticed in the 90s, America's internal divisions started getting more, more hostile, uh, you know, race and class and things like that. Whereas... Uh, before, the first 30, 40 years of my life, the Soviet Union was the permanent enemy. And, uh, that, you know, if we're not careful, there's going to be a nuclear war that's going to destroy both sides. Um, and so at least we Americans had to pull together against the uh, uh, the Soviets. And then when that ended, the, the, the internal ones, uh, internal division split. A recent book by my friend Mark Moffat, uh, looking at societies in all species uh from ants to to humans and ants and humans actually are somewhat similar compared to lots of others and he said there's never one society the society is based on a boundary a pretty strict boundary about whether you're in or out now, even in cases where like a ship wandered away and crashed and so all the survivors were alone in the world on some island Pretty soon they split into two opposing camps. <laughs> you know, initially they were all in it together, uh, but you don't have a society without uh, an outgroup, and that seems to appeal to something uh, in the human mind. Brings this beautifully onto your work on belonging, Roy, which um, connects with this side of I sort of herd mentality or group think that we were just discussing. I mean, as mammals, we feel safety in numbers. Uh, we feel safety in socially connected groups. Your uh, other most cited paper speaks of of how we're keener to avoid being uh, 
being thought of negatively and in that sense to be more of a threat to the group than we are to be seen by the group as a positive asset, which is interesting. Almost as so we're afraid to be thrown out and therefore to be left vulnerable. Tell us about how this finding about being keen to avoid being thought of negatively or thinking of ourselves negatively uh, connects with this other most highly cited paper on our motivation for interpersonal connection and belonging. Right. Uh, we, we clearly evolved to work together. Again, all species have to so, so solve the uh, problems of how to survive and reproduce. And we do it um by by culture by uh, forming groups uh, that share information and cooperate and and work together uh, so um yes lots of animals are safer in groups but the uh, the benefit of being in a group is much more central to the human approach than to even to the other uh, uh, other great apes um uh, if i had to get my own food from nature I wouldn't know where to begin. I get my food from the supermarket or from the restaurant. Um, none of the other animals have anything like supermarkets or restaurants or room service or anything like that. Uh, but it, it works together. Uh, culture is a giant system of communication and cooperation. So we need to be accepted into a group. Um, you want to also rise through the status you know, into a higher level of the group, partly because that means it's harder for them to kick you out. The people at the bottom are the most uh, um, precarious uh, status as, as belonging to the group. I mean, if you're if you're the boss, if you're in charge of the group, uh, you, they can't kick you out. Uh, you'd have to kick yourself out. Um, Until someone challenges. Yeah, well, uh, challenges happen and the, the people drop. Uh, but it's not usual for the the defeated boss to be kicked out. You know, after you lose the election for president, you don't have to leave the country. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, we also have more what's called theory of mind and that we understand how other people think of us. And it looks like there's not much of that. Even in the smartest great apes, they have a, a little of that, especially for competition, not for cooperation. Uh, which is really the more important part of culture. Um, so um, because of that, we can understand how other people perceive us and and become concerned with the reputation. You want other people to perceive you favorably. I've been trying for years to get a good handle on how much of this is evident in other of the great apes, you know, trying to get other people to like you, trying to have them have a good impression. But uh, they live pretty much in the present, whereas reputation is much more future-oriented. Uh, that, that's uh, um, one of the keys of why people behave morally and, and most other animals don't. Uh, it's not that you have some sacred, well, some people do a sacred or religious commitment, but the, 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 the bigger thing is that you need people to cooperate with you. And morality is a blueprint for how to act so that people will cooperate with you. Uh, you can teach two chimpanzees to cooperate so they have to pull a, a rope at the same time and then a treat falls down with, with food or something. You can train them to do that and they'll learn it, but then the big one eats it all. And then pretty soon the little one doesn't want to do it anymore, understandably. So it takes this advance in the human mind to say, well, 
yeah, I could hog all the reward myself, but then they won't cooperate with me in the future. I'll be worse off. So I should share, even though I don't have to, If I, even if I'm the bigger one, give some of the reward to the smaller one so that they will continue uh, cooperating with me and have a have, I'll have a good reputation as a morally reliable, trustworthy, fair person uh, who you can do business with. Finding people to cooperate with is one of the basic evolutionary challenges. And it's one in which humans have gone far beyond all the other great apes and pretty much all the other creatures in the world. Interesting how that feeds into, you know, what we were talking about before, about sort of different camps, a sort of uh, polarized opposites needing to conform and sort of uh, focus on the negativity of the other group in order to belong to one. Um, any comments on that before we move on? Um, I don't know quite what else to, <laughs> to no, 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 it was just in case there was anything to add there, because I feel that there's a connection between this, this sort of amplification of negativity as a sort of tribalism, you know, which is to say, oh, well, I belong more here because we're facing that negative together. Yeah. Well, tribalism in principle could be either a positive thing about our group or a negative thing about the other, uh, my friend Eli Finkel just published this paper a year or two ago, uh, looking at the political parties in the United States and how much they love their own party and how much they hate the other party. Um, and their love for their own party used to be the main thing. So Republicans kind of loved other Republicans and they sort of disliked Democrats um, and vice versa. Uh, but and that's remained the in-party love has remained the same over decades, whereas the out-party hate has gone way up. So it's now the bigger force. So Republicans are more united in their hatred of Democrats than in their love for each other. And again, the same Democrats are more united in their hate for Republicans than in the, in their love for other Democrats. And that so, tendency, that tendency seems to follow what we've been talking about. Know that actually yeah. we are using our innate negative bias to get a sense of belonging. Um, I find that absolutely yeah. fascinating. Yes, yeah, and it's true. And again, the tribalistic instincts are, are quite there. And uh, back in the hunter-gatherer days, which was most of human prehistory, um, you didn't change groups a lot. You didn't even have a lot of interaction with the others. The, the strangers were really dangerous um, physically because they would steal your food or your uh, partners or your or your land. Um, even physically, they might have uh, diseases and germs that you don't have immunity to. Uh, so it made sense to avoid them and just think of them as bad. But that wasn't a big part of, of daily life. You had mostly you lived with, with the members of your own group. And that's interesting to compare that to where we're seeing deglobalization now after a sort of long period of us heading towards a global society. We seem to be seeing a sort of pushback against that now. Now let's I get haven't uh, learned anything about de deglobalization. I didn't know it was happening. Um, well, here I think we are COVID... talking across uh, uh, thousands of kilometers distance, and uh, yeah, but... I think I think I'm thinking more in terms of you know, particularly post COVID, the, the the sort of withdrawal from this very very global market and and uh, supply chains uh, contracting and production being pulled back closer to where it will then be sold, mostly for supply chain purposes, uh, particularly after COVID. 
Anyway, let's get to the positive stuff. Now, your book with John, The Power of Bad, How the Negative Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. I want to talk about how we can rule it. It speaks about another great theme in your work, self-control and regulation. In this case, the need to take control of our negativity bias and channel it for our overall good. Now, what strategies do you and John suggest here and and how easy have your readers found it to apply them? Um, well, some of the strategies, uh, remember that you learn more from bad things than good things. So uh, uh, in, in our book, although it's this negativity bias, we both think of it as basically a positive book that, uh, I mean, again, the, the one basic message is the world is, is good and getting better. Uh, despite all the doomsaying, it's just hard to get a bestseller or a, a front-page newspaper article about how great things are. Uh, <laughs> um, so there's this focus on the bad, but the, the reality is life is getting better. Uh, yes, bad things happen to all of us, uh, but uh, that's part of the human experience. You you can learn from them. Uh, so pay attention, learn your lesson. Uh, in terms of building good relationships, whether it's in business or romance or or wherever. Uh, you want to be mindful of the greater power of negative things. I used to ask my students, uh, why should someone marry you? Why would you be a good romantic partner? And they would come up with positive things they do. I'm a good listener, or I'm going to make a lot of money, or I'm good in bed, or, or whatever. Uh, but I think, well, really, what the research shows you want to have a good relationship is you should be not doing the bad things. <laughs> you should be able to hold your tongue even when you're angry and not say something you'll regret or, or damage the relationship or you'll not waste the family's money on a some kind of stupid uh, venture or uh, uh, I think it's it's not doing the bad things has several times uh, the impact on the relationship as the good thing. So. Uh, so understanding the power of bad, uh, you want to first avoid doing those things. And in business, it's worth the extra mile to avoid having the negative customer who's going to write a bad online review. Uh, you know, cultivating the good ones, well, that's that's nice. Uh, but uh, uh, it's more important to avoid uh, the bad experiences. Uh, and businesses have various terms for this, like the the terrorist consumer or whatever who you know demands all sorts of refunds and extra things and then writes a bad review anyway um so uh, even in a romantic relationship with your your partner or whatever you say oh i did something to annoy her uh yesterday so i got to do something nice for her tomorrow well no you should think i got to do four nice things <laughs> uh, based on the roughly four to one ratio which is uh uh heuristic it's not a law of nature but uh but that roughly captures it and if you have in your mind oh i did something bad to him or her so i should do four or five good things to make up for it well that that will uh that will strengthen the relationship but you know you might be satisfied that you did something bad then you did something good so your conscience is clear uh but it, it's not enough to overcome the psychological impact uh of the bad things Tell us more about that rule of four. That's that's interesting. Yes, well, we wanted to uh, ascertain, you know, what is the, you know, how much stronger is 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 bad than good. Uh, 
Um, and it, it it varies across different domains. So, so how upset you are, as I said, about losing $100 versus gaining $100 or how happy you are about gaining it. Um, the uh, the initial idea of a ratio came from studies of relationships. So was the, uh, I, I guess there was a, a, a dinner where a bunch of relationships researchers were getting together at a conference and somebody said, I have all these giant data about what makes a relationship last a long time or not. What would you predict? And so they all had their, you know, we've got to have the same religion or the same political views or, or whatever. Uh, and the one that worked best, though, was uh, the ratio of how often they fought to how often they had sex. And so uh, John Gottman, who was a pioneer of studies of, of, of marriage, um, he tried to uh, quantify this and uh, he looked at couples and tracked them over time. Uh, and he came what came to be known as the Gottman ratio, which was five to one. Uh, so it'll be a long, happy marriage if you have sex five times as often as you fight. And it didn't matter the exact amounts. It's, you know, couples who basically never fight and only have sex, you know, five times a year, one fight. It works for them. Uh, it works for couples who have a fight every week, but have sex every night. Uh, as long as it's five or more, the relationship succeeds. Uh, it's not the total number of fights or, or whatever. And uh, when I bring this up, I always say that doesn't mean there's something magical about sex, although I suppose in another context there could be. Uh, but it's just, that's easy to to measure. Um, and Gottman was thinking more in terms of positive interactions, negative interactions. But if you ask uh, a married couple, okay, how many positive interactions did you have last week? You know, they don't know what to say. It is, you know, if he says pass the salt and I give him the salt, is that a is that a positive interaction? So it's hard to say that, but they know how often they had an argument and they know how often they had sex. So mm -hmm. those are easy to measure. So use those as proxies for sort of global good and bad interactions. Um, but um, the conclusion, which is held up over time, is that uh, about four to one is the break-even point. Um, there was uh, my friend Barb Fredrickson was, uh, had a book for a while saying that it, uh, there was a mathematical basis for saying it was three to one, uh, but she relied on a mathematician who uh, yeah, turned out not to be, uh, uh, you know, other mathematicians really questioned his work and said this is not a, a, a suitable application to psychology. So, uh, but your, your basic idea here of us being able to reason our way into managing this negativity bias relies on our self-control and our self-regulation in that sense right. our, our ability to yes. control our thoughts and this has been a big part of your research as well how good are we at self-control and self-regulation well this is something people say they're terrible at um, um the positive psychology group developed a list of 24 character strengths and self-control is one of them and they've surveyed tens of thousands, possibly millions of people, uh, which are your five best strengths and your five weakest weaknesses. Uh, Self-control routinely is one of the biggest weaknesses people claim and uh, least likely to show up in uh, among their strengths. So there seems to be a widespread consensus in our society that we're bad at it. But compared to other animals, we're very good. I'd say the, the glasses as much half full as, as it is half empty uh, in terms of self-control. We, we have a lot more capable ability for self-control than even our smartest uh, uh, animal relatives. And so, 
yes, it is fair to think that if we had better self-control, we would be doing even better in life. Uh, but uh, but we do pretty well. Uh, so mm. Something interesting in your work is this idea of a potential cost of this effort and fatigue of self-control. Uh, and it's relevant to one of the theories you explore. I think it's called ego depletion. Is that mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Can you explain what you mean by ego depletion and, and, and whether your studies have confirmed if it is actually a real phenomenon? Oh, yes, it's been confirmed. Uh, so what we mean by it is that willpower, in a sense, is limited. So I first noticed this when I was reading the research literature on self-control, trying to get a handle on it, because I wanted to understand the self. And several smart people were saying this is one of the keys to understanding the, the human self and identity. Um, so it seems when there are multiple demands on your self-control, you sort of run out of juice. You don't do as well at them. There's a recent study showing that people who are dieting to lose weight and trying to quit smoking at the same time, they do a bad job of both. And they're also really unpleasant to live with, which they don't control their emotions very well. Uh, so you have a limited capacity for self-control. Uh, and uh, so I, I pulled together the, the research, wrote a, a review of the literature on it. And one of my PhD students, Mark Marivan, said, well, we could try that in the laboratory. Let's give them a test for self-control. Uh, something to use up some of their willpower and then give them a different test of self-control and they'll do worse on the second for having done the first. The people who skip the first one should do better on the second task. And this was the opposite of what the reigning theories were predicting at the time because it was all the brain is a computer and so if the self-control module program is already loaded in the computer, it's going to do better at another self-control task because you're already in the self-control mode. But no, we, we very consistently found uh, the opposite, that uh, people would do worse uh, on the second task. Um, so uh, looking for a title for it, we used the term ego depletion. It seemed like some kind of willpower was getting used up. Mm. Uh, we looked for somebody, a thinker, who had talked about the self as having energy. Uh, again, nobody was talking about energy back in the 90s. Everything was information processing. And we had to go all the way back to Freud, who had said, yeah, the self, the ego, as he put it, uh, is made partly out of energy. And he was kind of vague about where the energy came from and how it all worked. Uh, but eh, out of respect, uh, we, used, we used that term. Mm. Um, Certainly is exhausting trying to stay on top of the things that you're trying to apply and trying to keep in mind all at the same time. I wonder also yeah. if this is a question of you know, sort of frontal cortex concentration, this ability to focus on things at the same time. And apparently the research says that that actually multitasking, for example, is impossible and you're just switching between things very, very right, fast. Right, yeah. Multitasking mostly just means doing a poor job of them. So mm. there, there was evidence for that, that people cannot do some things simultaneously. But the after effect, that the one used up some resource affected you, that, that was more uh, novel when we started finding that. Uh, my other book with tyranny called Willpower, which I think has been translated into Italian and 30 or 40 other languages, um, that covered a lot uh, of this research. Um, most recently, uh, uh, there was a review article somebody did a couple of years ago, the six or 700 uh, publications uh, supporting the effect, um, not in the opposite direction. Uh, some people don't get it, usually because you haven't tired them out enough. You haven't usually worked them hard enough. 
to do it. Everybody wants to copy a procedure for five minutes, but because uh, uh, it's easier to you know cycle people through the lab if they do it fast. Uh, but the ones who who, who do it, it's uh, it's been replicated all over all over the world, and uh, there are real world effects too. Uh, and like healthcare workers are supposed to wash their hands between every patient, uh, but as the day wears on, they don't. Uh, they start skipping it. Uh, physicians are you know, are asked for antibiotics all the time, and you know, they know it's not good to just give out antibiotics to everybody because uh, you'll develop uh, strains of disease that are resistant to the antibiotics. But again, as they get more depleted, they're more willing to say, "Okay, I'll give you antibiotics. I'm not going to argue with you." Uh, things like that. Accountants. Uh, there's a recent paper on ego depletion in accountants. Uh, the sports psychologists have used it a lot. They'll have people do these sort of mentally tiring exercise. I mean, they're mental, purely mental things, sitting at a computer for uh, 20, 30 minutes. And then they go out and play basketball or soccer or, or whatever, football. Uh, and they do worse. Their uh, their their skills are impaired. Uh, there's just a big meta-analysis of, of that, which combined... It's a, a statistical technique combining uh, results from lots of different experiments and saying, oh, yes, this this effect works. Mm. Um, it's even the latest fashion in, in social psychology is to do these multi-lab studies where you get a dozen laboratories to run the same experiment. And there was an early one to try ego depletion that, that didn't work. And you would say, oh, maybe it isn't a, a real effect. But it turned out they hadn't manipulated it. In fact, they'd manipulated something else. Um, there's only been four successes <laughs> of these um, uh, in all of social psychology, and the ego depletion is one of them. So mm-hmm. I think there's a pretty good case to, to say it's the best replicated finding in social psychology. Uh, and there what might does be another it mean? One. What does it mean for what you and John are suggesting in terms of us trying to sort of channel the way we respond to our negativity bias, the way we're constantly sort of worried or drawn into a state of of fear or concern, does the ego depletion element change anything about the way we we could apply some of your advice there? Okay, well, self-control is basically overriding one response to do another. So you might have an automatic response that, oh, no, that's terrible. Uh, but you can use self-control to say, well, before you go running off, do, you know, carrying, selling all your stocks or... Uh, breaking up with your partner or, or or whatever, you know, understand there's an overreaction, use your self-control to calm down, wait, look at the other side, uh, and uh, you perhaps make a wiser decision uh, in the long run. There well, thank you coming. so much, Roy, for uh, your, your generosity with your time. What's, just to finish, what's next for you? I mean, there's not many questions uh, in the important questions in psychology you haven't explored, do you feel there are a few more stones to 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 overturn? I mean, a lot is changing in society at the moment, isn't it? Is there anything left on your list? Yes. yes. Well, I said I'd, I'd just been trying to understand the political conflict uh, for a long time and what's uh, different about the left and the right. So one of the ideas there is that uh, for society to succeed, it has to produce resources and share them through the group. Uh, and the right is now more about the producing the resources and the left is more about uh, sharing them and redistributing them. And society needs both. So I wish we could get them to stop hating each other. You know, they're going to agree to disagree, but perhaps they could be a little bit more respectful. And you know, society needs both. Nearly all the successful 
societies in uh, in the world uh, have alternation in power uh, between center left and center right parties. I mean, you can point to a couple exceptions, like uh, China is doing well with one party rule. But but anyway, the the democracies when people can choose, they go back and forth. And they don't seem to be settling on one or the other. It really seems to be a stable equilibrium. Well, that allows both jobs uh, to get done. Uh, long ago, I wrote a book on meaning of life. Uh, since then, there's been a lot of research. So I have in mind uh, to do another book on that. Uh, right now, I'm finishing a book on a scientific theory of free will, uh, partly growing out of the ego depletion stuff. Self-control is important, but so is rational decision-making, and that also depletes you, as does making plans. So trying to think of in what sense um, does the human system for controlling action differ from the other animals and become uh, really freer. Well, that's kind of an exciting one. Uh, there'll be more. I mean, we're not going to run out of things uh, uh, <laughs> to study. Well, it's an extremely rich, rich subject, isn't it? And there is so much going on and so much changing that I think that, you know, as you say, there will never be a lack of things to to research, will there? So listeners, do go out and uh, get the book uh, written with John Tierney, The Power of Bad, um, and all of the papers that and, and books of his colleagues that, that have been mentioned today are going to be in the show notes. So, Roy, just, uh, it just leaves me to say thank you so much for your generosity with your time and wishing you all the best for the future. Okay, well, thanks, Freddie. Thanks for having me on. It's been a great conversation. 